My name's Will Duffin, GP and Education Lead. If you're a paramedic, doctor, nurse, physio, indeed anyone working in healthcare who has a curious and adventurous mind, then this is a podcast for you. During this pandemic, we've all had to modify our normal way of working. We've had to adopt new technologies like video consulting, manage patients remotely, work in constrictive PPE, increased personal risk, dealing with poorly understood virus that always seems to be two steps ahead of us. Consequently, many of us are understandably fearful. But how do we transform this fear into courage that enables us to practice from a position of strength and deliver the best possible care to our patients? To explore this with me in this episode, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Kathy Ryan. Kathy is the Medical Director of Brisdock Healthcare Services. That's the largest provider of primary care services, including out-of-hours GP within the wider Bristol area in the UK. Now, she's got a career-long fascination with managing clinical risk and the notion of courage versus fear-based medicine. Another unique thing I've noticed about Kathy is her interest in English literature that permeates through all of her communications, which are peppered with references from William Shakespeare to Mary Roach to Bill Bryson. Kathy's a proud Merseysider, and courageously, she took part in a Channel 4 TV series called Why Doctors Make Mistakes, in which she candidly reflected on a major clinical error that she made. Quick disclaimer, neither myself or Kathy are experts. We don't have the answers to this topic, but we hope to provide you with some thought-provoking dialogue. Kathy, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Will. It's a, it's a huge pleasure to, to welcome you on. How's, uh, how's lockdown life treating you? Uh, well, gosh, Will, it is becoming... Um strangely normal um which um is is itself strange isn't it um i have rather reluctantly taken up um running to try to keep um fit enough um and my i go running um sometimes with my husband who's a natural runner uh, and i'm an unnatural runner um and uh <laughs> so i go very much slowly and he runs ahead and comes back to me and um a couple of weeks ago we had this funny encounter with um i think a, a homeless chap who was sitting drinking his can of beer and um as we came past he he said are you are you two together like um and um uh in merseyside obviously and um uh my husband said yes and he said and you're still in Aww. love uh and my husband of yeah, course said yes lovely. um that's always nice to uh uh to the, the homeless community are interested in your your marital relations uh and and deeply caring for, for you and your husband <laughs> um so Kathy, uh, when you're not out running, you are medical director of Brisdock. You're managing, uh, leading a, a, a huge team of of clinicians, which includes me. Uh, and we are trying to make difficult decisions and manage risk on a, on a day to day basis. And you, you've got a huge experience accrued over your career of both being a practice practicing clinician and and a leader. And this this whole concept of fear based and courage-based medicine. Perhaps you could tell me where that came from and what does it mean? Sure. So 
Um, so I coined the terms fear and courage-based medicine about three years ago, Will, in the um, wake of the Bauer-Garba case. Um, the, the fallout from which I thought was, was just pretty grim. Um, and, um, and I felt that the fear, you know, reading the medical press and the general press and talking to people, fear was almost palpable. Um, well, and it, um, it perhaps also exacerbated something which I'd observed over many years, which is that our our sort of collective appetite and capability of holding clinical risk um, was slowly but steadily going down. Um, and, you know, we're, we're meant to practice evidence-based medicine. Um, uh, I feel like I've been harangued to practice evidence-based medicine for maybe 25 years. Um, and uh, about which I'm uh, a bit of a skeptic. Um, and I, one of my many jobs in the past was as a research manager, national research manager, <clears throat> and in Scotland. And I, um, someone coined the phrase medicine-based evidence, which I really liked and um, thought I'd like to see, you know, I'd like to see more of it then and now. Um Anyway, we're not perhaps mainly aiming for a critique of evidence-based medicine, but fear-based medicine is a bit of a riff on that. And I suppose my observation um, was that in reality, on the ground, fear-based medicine prevails far more than we understand, we acknowledge, and we try to address um so Kathy, um, what does fear-based medicine look like what are clinicians fearful of uh well many things uh will and i think it it varies from clinician to clinician and um something i'd um, encourage colleagues who are listening to consider doing is something i've called a clinical risk analysis where you you sit down with your team and um, it's very not rocket science. You think about what drives your clinical decision-making um, and write it down, and you divide it into fear and courage axes. So we did this um, a year ago with Brisdoc, uh, most of our senior clinicians. Um, uh, what? And it's just very interesting to see what comes up. So, so we we wrote it all down. We then talked about it, and so one particular example um, that came up was a fear of being sued. Um, and I, uh, I don't know how much in your um, the world of extreme medicine, how much medico legal um, the spectre haunts in the same way. Uh, I hope it. Oh, hugely, and it's a it's a big part of the, the the courses that we teach. It's one of the first thing that our delegates ask is if I go on an expedition and things go wrong medically, will I get sued? That is one of the number one questions oh, we get interesting. asked. So no, mm. no, there's nowhere on earth as as a practicing clinician where you 
uh, okay. can escape that. Okay, that no fear. immunity. Um, so, mm-hmm. so I, um, as a leader, <clears throat> um, I, I am not frightened of being sued. Um, uh, I, I have been sued twice um, from the time when I was a full-time GP. Um, I think the the average quota is that a full-time GP can expect to be sued twice in their career. So I've had mine. Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I think, so my observation as a leader, uh, Will, is that, um, uh, you know, having overseen millions of clinical encounters uh, by this point is that medico-legal actions are rare um really rare compared to the number of patients and cases we deal with and so living that as a leader has put it into a perspective for me um and and we so we talked about that last year when we did this exercise and one of the um lead gps said that 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 was helpful because he didn't realize it was pretty rare and and people i think see it as much more of a it might happen any minute thing than than is the reality um that that's not diminishing the unpleasantness when it does happen um i didn't feel um too chuffed when the the letters landed on my mat but um but still, you know, it, it's it's understanding the fear and trying to get it into perspective. Um, yeah, so, so coming back to the clinical risk analysis, I collated the, the fear and the courage um, uh, comments into things related to the clinician, things relating to the patient and things relating to the system and the team. So, um, and, and so, for example, guidelines uh, came up in both. So I think, of course, guidelines can be helpful, um, but they can also be constraining. Um, and, um, and fear generating, you know, if I depart from guidelines, am I, am I going to get into trouble? So I think they, yes. guidelines promote sort of what I call didacticism. Don't know if that's a word, uh, and they don't promote wisdom. I completely agree, Kathy. I mean, I think increasingly we're seeing guidelines treated more like tram lines, and I think perhaps part of that shift is driven by the medical legal process, whereby we're seeing clinicians on the front line are being judged not by their their clinical wisdom, how they made a patient centred decision in that specific scenario, but how their practice compares with the nice guidelines or the the guidelines in that area and you know a very kind of generic template which perhaps wasn't appropriate in that Mm. in that setting i think that's partly only fuel that 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 fear that if we do depart from guidelines we will be judged very harshly when it comes to coroner's inquest or um a medical legal Mm. process yeah Yes, and uh, yes, and that said, it's not, it's not, of course, easy to write good guidelines. Um, right. Uh, but somehow, I think we we could be cleverer about it. Perhaps, perhaps one way is enabling or, or uh, promoting um, 
clinicians to 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 use their own judgment and not just read a list of bullet points off the screen um yeah yes um i mean maybe that should be made more explicit um i think there is something in nice guidance about individual decision making and um what yeah. have you and i think they do mean it but they then of course do go on to tell you to do a then b then c um uh, and if yeah. the uh, you know if if the patient's not having it or you just think for whatever reason this isn't the right route to take um mm-hmm. it can be uh it, it can be difficult and, and well and that comes back to of course good clinical communication and rapport with the patient and um, real proper listening, which I think much as, you know, probably most people listening to this are seasoned clinicians, I think we can always listen better. Yeah, good old fashioned stuff works the best. Yeah, that's not not gone out of fashion, has it? Um, Just listening Mm. to our patients and uh, communicating Mm. carefully with them. So that's a really interesting exercise that you you mentioned. That's something you did within your team, where you uh, you had a, you've got a tool. Uh, I can see you've got it written down there in front of you, and you went through indiv- individually and collectively as a team what your fears mm. were. Uh, that that's a really interesting exercise, and you found that fear of being sued was number one. Um, no, no, I, I probably wouldn't say it was number one, um, Will, okay. but it it is it's one of the prominent fears. Um, yes. uh, we didn't actually do a sort of hierarchy uh, and it, it was sure, really sure. just a laying out of the stall, if you like. Um, what were the other fears that were unveiled in, in, in that process? Um, so I, I think in looking back at this today, Will, there's actually, there's a mix of, um, of, of things which, uh, in this, which a, which either promote fear-based, um, working or the potential consequences of something not going well so the, there's a sort of um a mishmash so some of the things relating to fear are for the clinician are you've had a recent complaint um or your your best friend has just had a really difficult case um uh, or you're um, worried about um, uh, just, and I think this is probably common to all of us, getting it wrong and and causing harm. Um, and I, um, I, I, I particularly owned, I have a, a fear of getting it wrong as a medical director. So, which would just be, especially if it was something fairly major, would that just be bloody embarrassing, wouldn't it? Um, so when you're in a leadership role, you, you have a degree of exposure when, in fact, um, uh, one of my GP colleagues came to sit in with me on Sunday evening in a, uh, an out of hours shift or IUC as we now call it. And, um, and I think she, it was very helpful because what she realized is I'm not a magician either. I just, you know go through the same stuff and have the same head scratching and um, don't know everything. In fact, increasingly think I don't know much at all. Um, And that's what we're all doing in medicine. Um, I think that's really great to hear that, Cathy, because especially some of the 
our, our junior uh, colleagues that will be listening might think that you know as you get more experienced in your career as a, as a clinician that you get to this <laughs> zenith where you don't have to make decisions difficult decisions anymore because it's all just clear you've got enough accrued experience and knowledge where you can just kind of quick fire you can you, you know what, what's what and and you can you can relax but you, you're saying you never really actually do get to that point uh, well I think if anyone ever gets to that point will they need to immediately retire <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> Um, so uh, coming back, if I may, so some of the other fear things mm. I think are um, patient related are where the patient has a problem that um, just isn't easy. Um, uh, mm. No one's managed to solve it um, or where there's a um, dissonance between what the patient wants and what the family wants um, or where um there's a, a dissonance between what I think is in the interest of the patient uh, and what the family thinks are the interest. So there's that sort of uh, tension um, makes, yes. you know, uh, walking a, a courageous walk more difficult. Um, yes. I, yeah, I really like that, I, that idea of dissonance between your agenda the patient the family's agenda and, and what about um, some of the human factors that 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 feed into our decision making what about if you know in out of hours we're often working in unfamiliar bases um it quite re- a lot of professional isolation um you know we, we're stuck in a little room we might be dying <laughs> to use the loo we might not have brought our lunch with us we might be kind of desperate for caffeine how do you think they feed into our ability to make courageous decisions uh well yeah a good point will i i think those very um small but important things have a, a really significant impact um and actually in my list in front of me on the courage side of the uh page um, there are things like uh, well-fed and watered, familiar environment, um, things running well. So, you know, just like the printer working. Um, and these days we're doing um, video consultations, which even I have embraced as a cheerful technophobe. Um <laughs> but, but, you know, but the, the webcam has to work and... Um, mm. And I think it's, um, I was surprised in our discussion at how much those, um, and maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, how much those very little basic human needs uh, need to be okay um, so that then people can grapple competently with, you know, these clinical decisions and risk holding. And it it did chime with the... um, I don't know if you saw it, the GMC did a big um, thing on doctor well-being, which was published late last year, um, yeah. in which they identified, and, and this was part of their response to the Bauergarba fallout, which, so, which was good. Um, and they talked about, I think, autonomy, belonging, and competence as being three key things that, that uh, are planks of our well-being. Um, and one of them, they came back to things like overnight um, staff having access to hot food, you know. Um, so, uh, so I think, and perhaps particularly in your 
um, colleagues who will be in perhaps quite, you know, difficult physical environments, um, uh, I think still probably paying attention to what can be done, what comfort can be brought to the person who's doing the doing and those around them. Um, Because I, yes, I think that promotes courage-based medicine more than we think. So there's a huge role that the system has to play and, and, and clinical leaders within that system in enabling uh, courage-based practice in, 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 in the clinicians. Um, one thing I've observed, Kathy, is many there's good evidence to show that, that doctors or other healthcare professionals who've been sued are much more likely to practice mm-hmm. defensively in the wake of, 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 that, of that very stressful, difficult process. Um, you've been mm. sued twice, uh, and yet you are you know, a huge advocate for not allowing that to to, to cause you to, to retreat back and not be able to tolerate clinical risk and hold risk. Um, could, can you think, could you perhaps reflect for me on any particularly memorable patient encounter or, or episode that's, that's really taught you something that's really changed you in, in, a, in a profound way? Um, so yes, Will, um, uh, 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 although just to, to go back to the being sued, which, which did have its effect on me yeah. and the two cases landed within two months of each other. So you, one of the fears then is God, I'm going to get another, you know, however many, uh, which thankfully touch wood, I didn't. So, so having these emotions in in as a response to being sued and um it, it is is of course appropriate and the fact it affects our practice is understandable that the key thing is to be conscious of it and to try and talk about it and mitigate it um but coming back, so my my probably seminal um, clinical encounter in the line of um, uh, openness and and what I now call courage based medicine was with a patient in A and E, um, probably about twenty three years ago, um, whom uh, I'll call him Fred, uh, on whom I missed a fracture, and um, I missed it because I didn't X ray him. Um, and I happened to be doing a dressing clinic when he was sent down from A and E, um, having been sent by his own GP with persistent pain. So I'd seen him about six weeks earlier, I think. Um, and um, and the nurse said to me, "Yeah, this guy's waiting, and he's quote hopping mad." Uh, and I said, oh, you know, pull the CAS card. Um, and I assumed uh, it was one of the SHOs. Um, and she pulled the card. And we stu- I can still see the moment now of us both looking at it and seeing my handwriting. And she immediately said, I'll get someone else to see him, um, which itself said something. And I, um, uh, I think I'm pleased to say I did not hesitate that, you know, no, I will go and see him. Uh, which I did. And it was probably one of the most uncomfortable encounters of my career because he was very angry. Um, I just apologized and I held up my hands and said I made a mistake. Um, 
I was I was looking at it thinking, why did I not x-ray you? Do, you? do you ever have those cases where you look back and think, why did I do that? Or why did I not uh, do yeah. that? Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I've um, definitely felt that. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I, you know, I apologized uh, several times and... Um, and got my boss to see him and got a specialist appointment and he was having none of it. And, um, he, uh, he's, he stormed out saying he was going to sue me. Um, and I was, you know, I was upset. I was a bit shaken. I was annoyed with myself. Um, but you know, it, what was done was done. And then about three weeks later, um, he, uh, I was, I think, just finishing off something in resource. There wasn't a patient there. And someone came in and said, oh, this guy Fred is outside and he wants to see you. Uh, And I thought, you know, he wants to tell me about his uh, legal actions progress, I expect. So I went out and um, completely unexpectedly, he, he said that when he got home and calmed down, he he thought that that we do all make mistakes, which of course is very true. And he appreciated that I was um, honest, that I didn't make any excuses and I just said, sorry. And um, he even apologized to me for getting so angry. And I was just, you know, blown away that, wow, um, that, you know, well, that's just good, isn't it? Um, uh, to the extent that I, um, I wrote it up and, um, sent it to the BMJ, um, as they used to do these filler articles with little sort of vignettes, which I don't think they do anymore, um, to bring them back, I think, uh, and they agreed to publish it, but they said they needed, um, Fred's permission. So I wrote to Fred, um, and I was actually on maternity leave at the time. So uh, so I wrote to him from my home address and explained uh, I was off and I just had a baby daughter. And, and he sent me back this letter, which I've still got, um, which he was very ha- happy for it to be published. And he said, I hope your daughter grows up to be as clever as her mum and less angry than some of her mum's patients. Wow. Um, How incredibly humbling that must have been. It was been. just lovely. Um, mm. uh, and, you know, so, uh, I guess I still think very fondly of him. And indeed, I did a, a workshop in my last job about clinical risk. And um, on, on this letter, Will, was a phone number. So this is maybe um, 13 years after this happened. And on impulse, I phoned the number uh, and he answered um and i we, we had a bit of a chat i think in truth he hardly remembered me um but um uh, and had some other more serious health problems by then but it was really lovely just to say a hello again so there's a moment of quite um remarkable insight both for you and and for the patient that that happened after that encounter when you both had a chance to kind of reflect on that case and there's something in there about your a recognition of your shared humanity and and, and you almost kind of formed a, a strange bond through through that yeah, process yeah we did um uh, and probably it actually had much more of an impact on me than on him um mm. and there's an element of luck in it um you know as in all these things um 
you know, a different patient might have reacted differently and gone ahead with their court case and so you know it, it's it, it, the the world isn't a bed of roses is it but but nonetheless that's what happened and I um uh yeah sent it to the BMJ it, it developed it triggered a few of those you know rapid responses and discussions and then as a result of that I was approached by Channel 4 who were um putting together this series called Why Doctors Make Mistakes and <laughs> not too surprisingly we're having to work quite hard to get people prepared to go on it um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is like 20 years ago so the you know the term clinical governance had only just been coined um, the you know it, I'm not sure it's much easier now but um and I thought long and hard um, and took advice and all the rest of it about whether I should participate because um, they they didn't want to, to talk particularly about the um, the fracture case. They wanted to talk about my um, my one major really stupid error, which was <clears throat> when I overdosed a patient um, uh, with diamorph in when I was an A and E S H O. So now over 30 years ago and the patient had a respiratory arrest thankfully survived um um and which i did uh, did agree to go on is i felt that they they were trying to do um an honest examination of why things went wrong and look at how complicated it can be and how um you know the way drugs are laid out in an anesthetic cupboard can be a key contributing factor to the wrong one being selected um so all of those small and large system things which um for my understanding fast forwarding to the bauer garber case there were many many system issues um and, and part of the sense of injustice was how she became the sort of the focus when there was a much bigger picture um so the the program there are clips available on youtube if anyone's really bored um we'll, we'll put a link to those in the show notes <laughs> well, Kathy. I, I would not encourage that well um <laughs> uh, and it was in retrospect it was a bit over dramatic the way they did it with all this music and sirens and things but that was probably mm -hmm. of its time um and my error was actually really mainly my error just a stupid moment of not thinking um rather than any bigger system thing so um so it didn't get much sort of digging into in the program but um but still you know i i look back and i think i was in my mid-30s didn't know where my career would go it was quite a courageous thing to do to tell the nation um <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. To put that out to a general audience, that, that's incredibly courageous. I think the thing I'm most interested in is how you've not enabled that, not allowed that to to taint your decision making. How you how let, let's move away from the, the concept of fear based medicine. I feel like we've been able to define that. Let's move on to to courage based medicine and what that lo looks like and how you've moved on from those complaints uh, that, that, that you've had into a much more into a bolder stronger landscape tell me about that 
Uh, okay, so I think courage-based medicine is not about doing anything super heroic, Will. It is about, um, uh, and I'm open to discussion on all of this, of course, but I think it's about understanding and owning and managing our fears um, and and not allowing them or trying not to allow them to distort our decision making. So, so fear isn't wrong. Um, and fear and courage really are probably on a spectrum and you can be too uh, courageous and end up being reckless. Um, <clears throat> but, but I think it's, there's a, a fundamental message around physician know thyself. Um, and I think we could benefit from much more talking about our um, fears and exploring them and trying to understand them. Um, and I think as well as having had a cup of tea in the last two hours and having a printer that works um, and having um, so one of the things I, um, you know, in a privileged position of being a leader I, I like to think you know if if someone in Brisdock gets something wrong um, uh, uh, I will support them um, and I have attended inquests with with my GPs and I've um, now it doesn't mean I dodge the sort of if I think what they've written or an action they took was not ideal I, you know I don't shrink from that discussion um, but overall, you're an individual clinician and I will back you. Um, uh, and so so I think there are many things which enable courage-based medicine, um, you know, courage-based leadership, of course, being a key one. But coming down to the individual, um, understanding one's fears is, uh, yeah, trying to mitigate them is, is a good starting point yes and um some of the received wisdom on on the nature of fear is that uh, or the nature of courage in fact is that it's not about not being afraid not having fears that is an inherent human trait we, we we're all fearful but it's it's how you how you uh rationalize and process those fears in order to make courageous decisions um got a great quote here from Winston Churchill, fear is a reaction, courage is a decision. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, in fact, my mum used to say, Will, that <laughs> when I was born, I looked like Winston Churchill. So, um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> you're, you're a Winston Churchill looking <laughs> baby. It's great. I like to think we were all um, babies, just do look like him, but um, yeah. Yes, yes. And I, I really like, Kathy, you're talking about physician know thyself, the, the role of, of self-awareness and um, being able to, to name your fears. And there's a whole practice called fear setting uh, that many people do, um, which is something that I think the Stoics were quite um, uh, initially coined. But um, I think that, that the process that you did with your team, and perhaps that's something that our listeners could do as individuals, is, is think, you know, what are they afraid of when they go into their next shift? What what could possibly go wrong? And, and maybe just write those things down. And did you think that would be a helpful way of unpacking those fears and perhaps being able to um, re 
order them in our head and and and, and show to ourselves that perhaps many of those are unfounded and actually if, if any of those things did happen you know, we could probably actually deal with a lot of the fallout of, of any of those things yeah well i i actually very much encourage listeners to do it before they go on to their next shift it's it's a good thing to do with a glass of rioca um and a bit of time to actually uh look in the mirror and think um you know what drives my clinical decision making um uh yes so i think doing it um as an individual is healthy um i think doing it with colleagues with your team is probably more fertile um but you do need to have a climate of trust to be able to you know f- you know for me to just say out loud i'm em- i would be embarrassed as medical director to you know um to screw up um you know is something i need to know my team's okay with that and won't go think bloody hell you know um um the other um sort of workshop type thing i encourage people to do which again is not rocket science will is something i've called things that go bump in the night which is um in fact you you could also do um around the table um you know informally in a social setting as long as it's confidential where you just bring a case which kept you awake at night um and when i introduce the session i um talk about a case recent-ish which kept me awake at night which was in um the iuc service of a five-day-old baby where I was asked by a nurse to put my head into the room and um, have a quick look at this baby. Um, And uh, from past experience, head in the room consultations can be a bit of a tripwire. Um, and she, the baby had a mucky umbilical cord and was fine, uh, basically, but she, she told me some observations and I um, basically made reassuring noises, went back to my work and then I woke up really early the following morning and th- remembered the heart rate, I think was 100 or 110. And I just had this like, that's quite low for a, a re- very small baby. And like, I was awake in an instant. And I then got myself into this, in, in retrospect, stupid spiral of, um, oh my God, you know, um, stupidly Googled um umbilical cords and found this condition called exomphthalitis. It all goes in and, um, you know, um, the baby gets septic and, you know, the game's up sort of thing. And my rational head at the time was saying, don't be stupid. Um, And of course, in the end, the baby was fine. But so, uh, so what I found was I talked that out and, and um, because I've I've been there, I've walked that walk. It gives people, I think, permission to talk about their own, you know, heart stopping, um, sick inducing moments, which we have all had. Um, and it's just, I I just think we should talk about this stuff more and look at. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, that, that's something I can really relate to. I think we've all had these moments where we've maybe in the evening over dinner we've just had this realization oh i've 
I just remembered I forgot to do this. I forgot to drop these bloods off the lab or I didn't check this thing with this patient. Or wait a sec, I I remember seeing that clinical sign and I what did I do about that? And then suddenly you're, you're phoning, <laughs> phoning back in and you're trying to get someone to check results for you and review the patient. And, you know, where does that mm. where does that end? And I think that could be very de- destructive um, for our own mental well-being. How would you suggest that people could perhaps compartmentalize their work and prevent having these after work <laughs> um, moments of panic? Uh, well, uh, tricky, of course. Um, I think if we were all eternally vigilant and um, kept perfect records and did it all right, then that that wouldn't happen. Um, but that just isn't what the world is like. Um, I, I think if you if we have that um, middle of the night or middle of dinner or middle of shower, oh my God, you know, I didn't even think <laughs> yeah. of an ectopic or um, I, yeah. I think you you have to work it out in the moment. You you cannot. So when I've had those experiences, I can't just put it to one side. You have got to make the phone call or you've got to, um, in this baby case, actually, I found we didn't have a contact number on the system um, or the contact number was for a parent's friend, uh, which who we couldn't get hold of. And I had to, as you will know, Will, we have quite a strict home visit policy, which is like my baby, that home visit policy. Um, And I had to really resist the temptation to send out a visiting car to check that baby was okay. Um, I did resist the temptation. Um, We eventually got hold of mum a couple of hours later. Um, But, you know, how can we... uh, Well, those moments are better avoided, of course. So trying um, trying to be conscious of... Things like, you know, those head in the room consultations, things like the last consultation in any shift, the risk goes up. Mistakes are more common um, uh, because we are starting to switch off. So, you know, being aware of those um, landmines that we can all step on, uh, maybe we do it a bit less. Absolutely. I think one test that I... I run through in my own practice is if I'm if I'm in the middle of a challenging encounter, I ask myself with this decision I've just made, I battle test it in my own head by asking, am I going to go away and worry about this? Am I going to lose sleep over this decision? And if so, perhaps it's not the right one. Um, and I think that's a way of tapping into that intuition that we have and, uh, and, and, and vocalizing that and then mm. acting on that. Because I think very often say that, that these things can be prevented at, at that time. We, we kind of know that it's not the right course of action, but we really have to just stop, uh, pause and, and just uh, and reflect on, on that decision. And is it is it the right thing? Yeah, we do, Will, although there's a balance in that because clinic, any group of clinicians, there's a spectrum of comfort with risk holding. And mm. um, some of the more risk averse clinicians um, would and could send everyone to hospital and do every investigation and and that would make them sleep at night. Um, so, you know, a part of the, the whole challenge is, you know, well, what does good look like? In truth, we don't really know. Um, but, but you know, the ends of the spectrum are probably not good. Um, and how, 
you know, how can we, so part of my task as a leader, and particularly at the moment with COVID, is how can we encourage and support courageous practice amongst all of our clinicians, um, including the more sort of jittery ones? Yeah, so that's a really a huge challenge because, as you said, everyone's somewhere along that spectrum. Some people are much more comfortable with holding risk than others it's uh, it's very much a personal uh, attribute mm. but u- ultimately i think the, the key point you made there as well was that as as gps as as senior clinicians within that that organization we somebody has to shoulder risk someone has to take that m- m- make a decision uh, and that that's that's how we add value if, if everyone was deferential if everyone just passed that risk on and, and kept, kept referring on you know, we would never make progress well, would we? the system would sink um by tonight um and i think one of the absolute um platinum value things of general practice both in hours and out of hours is that we are broadly we are good at holding risk uh, and allowing time to um uh to tell us the story um as to what to do next and i think that's a real art um yeah medicine is as much art as science will now, one theme that emerged when you were describing um, courage-based medicine, Kathy, is this idea, this notion of confidence. And we need to have confidence in our own abilities, presumably, to be courageous. I mean, confidence gives us that power to act on our convictions, to have faith in, in what we're doing and, and to take the appropriate action. However, the the flip side to this is overconfidence. And whilst confidence feels feels good i think overconfidence also feels quite good <laughs> in the moment you almost don't know that you're being overconfident um and and that that kind of enters the realm of being unsafe being perhaps quite gung-ho or um reckless with your decision making how do we know kathy when we're being appropriately confident in our own abilities and when we're bridging into overconfidence and recklessness with our mm-hmm. decision making. Yeah, good question, Will, and reminds me of a, an interview for a GP job, which I attended uh, many years ago and failed to get, in which I was asked, um, how can you avoid making the same mistake with ever increasing confidence? Um, and I was flummoxed by the question. Uh, which isn't quite the same as what you're saying, but I, I think there is, um, I, I think we uh, we have to allow um, peer um, peer review, um, and whether that's a sort of formal system which we have within Brisdoc, as you know, or it's. Um, in general practice, people are looking at each other's notes um, all the time. Um, I I worked as a single-handed GP for about two and a half years, um, picking up a failed practice, which was another um, thing about, gosh, courage and how things can go wrong. That's a whole other story, Will. Um uh, but I realized by the end of the couple of years, much as I had enjoyed it, that it wasn't really a healthy environment because I was too autonomous. Um, uh, I didn't have, um, I had other staff, of course, but I didn't have other GPs sort of looking over my shoulder, sitting alongside me. Um, uh, 
So, so there's something about that sort of um, sense checking over time. Uh, there's something about, again, self-awareness. Um, I, I think the individuals who become overconfident um, and there's been some, you know, famous and, you know, very um, sort of upsetting examples of people who've gone miles out with normal practice um, and, you know, now subject uh, and have been subject to criminal investigations. So, um so there's something about individual humility and um, self-questioning and um, healthy um, um, challenge, I suppose, of one's own. Am I okay at this? Which can go the other way, and people can can um, uh, and this is quite a thing in medicine people can be too self-critical and think they've got to get it right all the time and um uh yeah it's it, it's a balance um well just about um what my my dad was a, a wise old my late dad was a wise old soul and he used to say to me yes. in, in everything in life there's a balance and i have slightly amended it and my version of it is in almost everything in life, there's a balance. Yin and yang, yin and, yin and yang. Um, so, so that that self conscious uh, overconfidence. Now, there's another perhaps potential barrier to courageous practice, which um, I want to quickly unpack. And this is the idea of the perfectionism that you mm. just touched on. So this this is where um, people develop uh, traits of being very self-critical, very intolerant of mistakes, feeling that they've never quite done the job well enough. And I, I wonder whether within uh, medicine as a whole, the educational system has bred that in many of us. You know, it's a system that prizes ambition, achievement, control, high grades. You know, there's this UCAS form mindset where we're encouraged to be high encouraged to be high performers in all aspects of our life. There's no room for weakness, vulnerability or or failure in this model. And I think uh, many clinicians find themselves trapped in the, in this mindset and, and and they're naturally caring people. They want to do the best for their patients. And that that desire and that drive can become quite crippling what would you what would you say to that um well difficult um will and i'm quite a long way removed from the medical education system these days and i um i recognize what you're saying and i would hope that at medical school and in early days that um that the importance of um uh, of self-knowledge of self-forgiveness um the term i came across recently self-compassion um are just as important as um uh, as getting it right and um scoring well in the exams and um but i do know what you mean there's something about you know just to get into medical school you it is a competitive environment um which uh, there's something sort of um, not compassionate about that, isn't there? Um, But I I think if there's an individual, and there may be individuals listening who think, um, you know, recognising themselves, um, if you like, then I would be wanting to ask 
um, that were one of my GPs, where that comes from, and try and um, try and unpick it and understand it. And some some people have had you know that from childhood. They've had high achieving parents who've had high expectations, and all their kids have ever been sort of like told um both verbally and non-verbally to do is you know hit the top note if you like and they they spend their whole yeah, lives yeah. trying to do that and um yeah I, I think the difficulty really comes is where that high achieving mindset meets the 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 system in which we have to operate where we just can't we cannot physically deliver the best care that we want to deliver because of all mm. the constraints that we, both on resources on you know the way that we practice the, the inherent uncertainty with dealing with undifferentiated illness you know, being that first point of contact as a, as a GP I, I think w- when you juxtapose those two together that's a perfect recipe for um, fear-based practice potentially and 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 also this discontent yeah yeah absolutely uh, um well i think in it's sometimes a recipe for even more than that will and the individuals it, it just doesn't work out um because that mm. that marriage of managing uncertainty and um holding cases and dropping the ball now and again because we all do do that mm. um becomes not yeah tolerable for some people um uh yeah and they have to find other routes um but yeah it it starts um i i had a reunion of my um old school friends will for our 50th birthdays and i was struck at how little any of us had changed from when we were teenagers um and i um, was telling this to a friend who's a primary school teacher and she said oh it's much earlier than that you know I observe my four-year-olds um, at school they they hardly change um, so so I think any any of us who have kids uh, or who have influence with kids you know that's where it starts get it right or as right as we can in terms of instilling balance and compassion and support and honesty um yeah even when uh, they're driving you mad kathy do you think that appraisal and revalidation is a useful tool to promote reflection self-awareness self-compassion or is it a meaningless administrative paper machine in which already competent doctors prove that they are already competent <laughs> Uh, good question, Will. Um, I have not been sorry not to have an appraisal this year. Um, uh, and the, the truth is somewhere in the middle. It, it, um, it's a balance, uh, Will, because we have to have some sort of regulation. But um, I, I think we could do it better. Um, I think the you know, the appraisal system as it's grown has become a bit of a, a you know a monster of stuff, and it's you know it's not come back to what I said about guidelines. It's not a promoter of wisdom. Um, so it'd be nice perhaps to I don't know start appraisals with just a blank piece of paper. Um, mm-hmm. Or with a uh, you know clinical risk analysis or something that's you know this is about you as a person. It's not about the courses you've been on and the well often slightly sterile learning points that you record. It's um, 
It's about you, you the human being. Yes, I, I, I feel it's 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 kind of grown into this behemoth. It, it's just the, the amount of different things you've got to complete for your appraisal. It's got very prescriptive, much like clinical guidelines have just exploded and expanded. And uh, I really like the idea of just starting with a blank a blank piece of paper, uh, just you know just stripping it down to yeah you know, essential conversation where you just get to have a just really just think about your own practice you know with a, with a, with, a, with a fellow clinician uh, without all the the noise and distraction of all the mm. different box ticking that you have to do I, I i really aspire to that i really buy yeah. into that Kathy. in fact well well we could suggest this to whoever's listening that we that the, the blank piece of paper has um how can we promote courage-based medicine and then how are you yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah discuss. discuss yeah i love that <laughs> brilliant well kathy it's been a immense privilege to have you on the podcast and I, I i'm really glad you've taken the time to do this i know you're a very busy person uh but i think the this this notion of courage-based medicine is something we should uh, all be trying to weave in, in into our practice uh well well it, it's been a pleasure thank you for asking me and i'm uh interested to hear um what your colleagues think and if they um, undertake clinical risk analyses, um, what they look like. And uh, yes, I hope we can keep the conversation going. Absolutely. And if, if people wanted to reach out and, and connect with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Uh, I suppose via email, Will, do you um, yeah. want yeah. me to give say my email address or you put it on the end of it? We'll, we'll, we'll pop that in yeah. the show notes. Yeah, so get in touch with Kathy via email if you've got uh, anything you want to to say. Um, so thank you very much, Kathy. So that's courage-based medicine. So it's not about anything clever or anything super heroic. It's just about recognizing, owning, understanding our fears, and despite them, making the best decisions for that for our patients in any given scenario. Uh, so some really, really valuable. Uh, wisdom from um, a colleague and senior leader within the NHS. Thank you so much, Kathy. And I'll leave you with a quote from Nelson Mandela. I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it.